You just listened to an excerpt from the first movement of Antonin Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. The orchestra was the Hungarian Dahnányi Orchestra Budafolk, and the conductor was Dr. David Gallant. And today, David is here to help me answer the question, what do conductors actually do? David is currently the music director of the University Symphony Orchestra at Creighton University, Nebraska, where he also teaches both music history and music appreciation. Dr. Gallant has guests conducted around the globe, including locations such as the Dohnanyi Conducting Academy in Hungary, the International Institute for Conductors in Bulgaria, the Prague Summer Night Young Artist Festival in the Czech Republic, Miami Music Festival in Florida, and the Wintergreen Summer Music Festival in Virginia. He's also worked with the Charleston Symphony, Weiden State Philharmonia Orchestra in Bulgaria, the Klassische Philharmonie in Germany, the Czech Philharmonic Prague Symphony, Boulder, Colorado Chamber Orchestra, and the Holland Symphony. He's got some great insights into the conducting world, and I really learned a lot from talking to him. So without further ado, here's the conversation. I remember last time we spoke, you said that you were doing some interview on a TV station in Nebraska. Has that happened already? Yeah, actually, I went to a local television station in Omaha, and particularly they're interested in new faculty in the area, and we talked about what I'm doing at Creighton University, what my plans are there, what my five-year plan is, and it was actually kind of uh, very, it was a very nice way to get to know the community because the community's heavily involved with that TV station because it's a local station. Uh Um, So I was able to, you know, kind of, tell my story, my background, and where I'm from, and and what I'd like to do in the world of conducting in Omaha, Nebraska. Was that your first time on TV interview? Yeah, that that was definitely my first time. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I thought to myself while I was doing it, I thought, well, it could be my first and my last time, so I want to make it count. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you get a podcast interview right after it, so yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So how long have you been working at Creighton now? So this is my first semester. I am a um, tenure, tenure track assistant professor there. My duties include conducting the orchestra. I just started uh, a chamber music ensemble where we get octets, trios, quartets, and quintets together and play diverse mm-hmm. rep. And I also teach the, the courses in music history, which include the classic romantic class, the 20th and 21st century class, and then the uh, Baroque and, um, sorry, Renaissance Baroque. Wow, you got your hands full, man. Yeah, yeah, it is, but it's fun, you know? I mean, I think one of the coolest things about teaching music history is I'm constantly learning. Um, it, you can never learn enough about how history plays into music, and they touch one each other immensely, um, even as they move, per, as they progress throughout the history of music. So the more you know about the history of music, the more you understand the idiomatic tendencies of instruments. And then also you understand performance practice, why things are played a certain way and what was going on and all of those, those really cool, cool things that you can tie into playing your instrument. Yeah, for sure. I actually taught a music appreciation course for one semester at at this one college to non-music majors. It was really fun, actually. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, uh, you know, they're great kids. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of fun teaching non-music majors because they have no really preconceptions. and Everything yeah. is a new discovery for them. So I, I enjoyed it a lot. 
You know, at at our school, that's our biggest class because it's requirement to have three, not fine and performing arts units, but they have to take a certain amount of courses tied into the arts, and mm-hmm. they need they need three units of it. So a lot of the students will just knock it out in one time. They'll they'll just knock it out by taking music appreciation. I get a lot of business majors, psychology majors, nursing students. Oh, cool. They're fantastic, and they're always asking questions that I didn't even think of. So it's great. So I want to talk a little bit about your theory of conducting. I talk to a lot of people who, well, again, we we were just talking about non-musicians. One of the most common questions I get asked, actually, is what does a conductor actually do? I just got asked that actually um, maybe a couple weeks ago. I went to the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and uh, there was this girl who was a dancer, but she didn't really understand the conductor. So I I was trying to explain what it does. So in your mind, what does a conductor really do? Well, the first thing we have to take into account is what the conductor does immediately when they walk up on the stage. When they get up there, they are turning their back to the audience. And by doing that, they're submissively showing that they are not the focal point, that mm-hmm. everyone should watch the ensemble. So it's immediately a, a, a way of showing a little bit of, I guess, a power towards the ensemble. And so one of the, one of the questions I, I always tend to have to address is, um, does the conductor do anything like you said? And the truth is, is when we're on stage, we are inviting the ensemble to play. We're not dictating to play in at a certain time. We're just inviting them to play. So, I mean, the worst thing you could possibly have in an ensemble is 40 different opinions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The great thing about the conductor is there's only one opinion, and that opinion is the baton. And when you only have one opinion, that's when music is synchronized. Um, if you've ever been in a chamber music ensemble, everyone is playing together synonymously, but they all have their different opinions about the music. The idea behind the conductor is that it unifies the ensemble so that you don't get all of these different, um, whether it comes to phrasing, articulation, um, tempo, all these things. Even though you can watch the concertmaster, the the conductor really aids in figuring out what the subtleties behind the music should be. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, this is my philosophy. My philosophy is, is that we want the orchestra to take the autonomy to do it. Conductors that are very florid and flowery that make it about themselves are missing the boat, in my opinion. Um, Mm. It's all about the music. It's about the musicians. Um, One of the things I like to compare conducting to, uh, or like what I do, is that I kind of consider myself a hydra, um, that I have three different heads, my left mm. arm, my head, and my right arm. My right arm being the right head of the hydra, the left arm being the left head of the hydra, and my head being the middle. So that I'm constantly, I constantly have control over the ensemble, even when I turn my body, because I have these three different heads that are looking. Because when I, when I have my hand extended, it is engaged with a certain portion of the orchestra, and my head would be centralized, and my right arm would be on the right side of my body. So... I'm able to multitask um, efficiently in cueing and in all the other diverse aspects of conducting. When, when you're conducting a piece of music, 
technically what you want to do is not give the bare, the bare bones the meat and potatoes. You don't want to be so focused on beating. Um, I think, uh, I think a, a great example would be someone saying, oh, you're, you're beating that piece to death. And mm-hmm. the point of beating the piece to death would be to signify that you're so focused on showing where the beat lies that you're missing everything in between, all of the music that's happening. And so as musicians, we need to be able to assume that the musicians don't need the beat all the time, that they can figure out mm-hmm. if you give them a preparatory beat or you give them two beats, that they can figure out where three and four is without you having to give them that. Taking that aside, then that's where the fun part begins. That's when you get to show rallentando, diminuendo, crescendo. Um, you can show cues. You can give facial gestures that it heighten the sound. Um, and then it really becomes art. And I think we get so trapped in going, oh, they have to be able to play it. Playing is a, is a function of being able to play their instrument. But really, playing it is like looking at a painting and being, sta- being right in front of it and seeing all the little dots. But music is standing away from a painting and viewing the painting from the, f- viewing the whole painting. And mm. it, we don't want to do that as conductors. We don't want to focus on the nuts and bolts all the time because um, that could be one of two things. If you're focusing on the nuts and bolts all the time as a conductor, it means that you really don't know, you only know how to do that. And that sometimes is a product of being in elementary school, middle school, and high school because they're so focused all the time on, on notes and rhythms that they really never get past that. Like they just go into performance and it's notes and rhythms. There's no balance in the orchestra. There's no phrasing. Everything's mezzo forte. There's real, no dynamic contrast. Um, and it's, and it, you feel like you're, uh, you're, you're listening to music on one of those old stereos that just like pound in your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, philosophy of conducting is, it should be that the orchestra comes first and that we have to think big picture. We have to think if the audience were sitting in a chair and they closed their eyes and they were listening to the music, are we effectively not only demonstrating what the composer wanted, what was the composer's intent? You know, Leonard Bernstein did a lot of stuff where he would mess around with Tempe and mess around with, um, you know, he would talk about what he thought but really, we consider the score, the Bible, I mean, it is, it is legitimately what, even the handwritten score, it is literally what the composer intended. And we have to do as much as we can. And this brings up a different argument of, should we, should we not perform the music the way the composer intended it? And this is kind of a common, in the 21st century, it's a common um, problem that we're having because a lot of people are now experimenting with the music and trying to diversify it. And I think in certain areas, it's okay. But Josh, if you were the composer of a piece of music and it was dear, near and dear to your heart and you knew people were rearranging your music or, or changing the orchestration or changing the dynamics or changing, or changing the meter or changing the... Um, I mean, I've heard of I've heard of Firebird being conducted in t- in four so that people can play it instead of feeling um, the mixed meter. Um, the question really becomes, uh, or oh, and, and Rite of Spring, to be exact, actually, 
Um, the question, <laughs> the, the the question becomes, you know, how how uh, and, and this is this is no right or wrong answer. This is just this is an opinion. Like when we're conducting, how close do we need to stay to the score? And that's a personal opinion. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people that want to try new things and do different things. And and now this brings up something else. In a world where um, a lot of orchestras are folding, and, and, and the orchestral world is worried about the the life expectancy and seeing the gray hair in the in the hall, one is considering doing something different to bring in more young faces. I know in in um, heavily populated cities, they're doing a good job right now of um, diversifying the experience, the, the listening experience so that young kids come in. But I mean, we are experiencing um, what I would like to call an overturn of what orchestra means and also what instrumental music means. I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a piano in 75% of households. And now I, I, I want to say they're there aren't many pianos in households anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this, the music, the instrumental music world is, is shifting dramatically. Um, now, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing or a good thing. I just think it's, it is shifting. And so the role of the conductor changes. It's now about trying to bring life to orchestral music so that we get more listeners. Back then, they weren't so concerned about keeping orchestral music alive because because people were interested in it and it was the thing to do you'd go out and you'd go to symphony and then you'd, you'd, go, you'd have dinner or you'd have dinner and then go to symphony or you go to opera but now it's not the case it's not the norm anymore and um, and so this is another role of the conductor they're not looking for a con- it'll, it'll always say on the job it'll say conductor and music director and they're looking for someone that can direct the music in a positive way and change the culture in that city. And so I know I, I've overloaded you with uh, content, um, but those are some of, the, some of the many different roles the conductor has. And, and just to recap, those roles are how to interpret the music, should, should you go outside of the score. Number two, revitalizing orchestral music with, in, in, in the area so that we get more listeners. And number three, that would be inviting players to play and focusing on the big aspects instead of the small aspects. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a lot of really good content right there, actually, that we can sort of unpack some of the ideas. Um, as far as the score and the fidelity to the score, that is a really interesting question. And, Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not even sure that I know the answer as a performer, because when you brought up the question, if I were to compose a piece of music and I've, you know, I've written pieces, I've composed pieces. If someone were to play it differently than I wrote it, but I liked it better, you know, I would totally be open. And this is just me. Maybe this is my personality, but I would be open to changing it. Um, if someone did it differently than I wrote it and I hated it, I would probably be upset. But again, that's sort of subjective. Um, one question I wanted to ask you though, there's a trend I've noticed in conducting, uh, for the orchestras to kind of sound a little bit more uniform. Uh, I went to this concert recently. Uh, it was a fundraising concert for Dallas Symphony Orchestra and they had a guest conductor. He was a young guy recently got his master's, I believe, at uh, Juilliard and 
what I noticed from his conducting was everything sounded very safe and very accurate. Uh, it's something I also notice in competitions, solo competitions, like with piano or violin. Mm. There seems to be like a tendency towards accuracy, um, almost at the expense of the drama within the music. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Have you noticed? Have you noticed any of that? You know, one of the philosophies that when you're working with conductors, they'll say, well, you know, I, this is the sixth or seventh time I'm conducting Beethoven 7, and, and I'm going to approach it this way, and I'm going to approach it that way. But one of the things they teach you is, if you've never conducted a symphony before, go by the book. Don't try mm. to do too much too early. Learn about the piece. Be safe. Because if you take liberties and you try new things... You need to know that you are trying those things and you need to understand you need to understand the orchestration, what the uh, what the composer's intent was. You know, if you're going to take time in the development for, per se in a in a piece of music, there's got to be a reason why. If the tempo marking is the same and you want to take time, you need to know why you're taking time. And in order to know mm-hmm. why you're taking time, you have to have done it the way it was written first before you break the mold because People that break the mold and people that change, they don't have the con. They don't understand. It's it's kind of all conductors. Every conductor needs to be able to answer the question why. If someone says right. to you, "Why did you do this?" You can't just say because because I'm the conductor. No, you have to say, "Well, there's a diminished chord here, and it brings out the tension in the harmony. And I want to lay on this chord a little bit. I want the trumpets to be a little bit uh, softer because the balance is." They're they're in a a top register and they're in a top partial. You have to be able to communicate to your orchestra or to to anyone, to to someone that's talking to you about music, about why. And sometimes it's okay to approach a piece of music as a novice conductor and go, okay, I don't know much about the piece. Um, I'm young. I'm very young. This orchestra that I'm conducting, the Dallas Symphony, has probably played this piece 25 times. So they probably know the piece better than I do. And the truth is, is the conductor is supposed to know the piece better than the orchestra does. And in this case, the orchestra knows the piece better than the conductor does. So I'm Mm. pretty sure even if that conductor wasn't on the podium, they would still do fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You really have to know your orchestra, know how much they need. Can you back away? If you back away and you let them play more, will they play better? Sometimes getting in the way of the orchestra makes it worse. Like you said, it sounded very safe. Um, he, it probably sounded very safe because he was, he was probably feeling like he was in a box and that he didn't mm. want to take risks. And actually, you know what? I think it's a good thing when you're not taking risks when you're young. I, I, I just think right. it is. Because you have the rest of your life to take risks. You don't. <laughs> if you're going to fail and you're going to destroy... Um, some of the greatest works ever written. Um, make sure that you, when you do that, that you know 100% that it's not going to go wrong. Like a great example of this would be, I was, at a, I was at a conducting workshop in Oregon and we were doing Appalachian Spring and I was working with Neil Verone, the conductor in uh, University of New- Rochester, um, uh, Eastman School of Music. And he said to me, I, we were doing a part of the Copeland, and I, I wanted to do it in two. Or sorry, I wanted to do it in four. And he said to me, 
no, you have to do it in two. And I said, no, I want to do it in four. And obviously he, he had done it a million times. He played Appalachian Spring a million times. So I said, let me try it in four. I want to fail. So I got up in front of the orchestra and I tried it in four and it didn't work. <laughs> it literally didn't work. Like he knew it wasn't going to work. I wanted to. And then after I had felt that and I knew that it wouldn't work, I needed to fail on my own. Like I needed to make that, make that connection and go, you know, it doesn't, just because someone says it doesn't work, it doesn't, that means nothing to me. I need to, to do that on my own terms. Um, but in response, I mean, I, I feel like I tangented it a little bit, but in response to what you're saying about the conductor, the conductor being safe, you know, also let's take into account music critics. Critics are, that are going to concerts are going to comment on any little thing, especially these critics that are baby boomer generations that have um, been to orchestra for like the last 40 years. They mm-hmm. are going to, for young conductors, they are going to say anything and everything that you do differently. And sometimes you just want to go in and guest conduct and just do it the right way. And you don't want to like create a negative feeling. Like the more stimulus you impose on an orchestra, the more reason they have to hate you. Right? So mm. the more, the more, sometimes the more you do, the worse it is. It's kind of like a... Um, less is more. Yeah, less is more. Le- less is a lot more. Sometimes, I mean, if you start doing too much, first of all, they're going to think that you're not listening. Because the more you move when you conduct, the less you listen. The more physically mm. animated you are, the less you can hear things. The less you move, the more you can hear things. But I, but I think that's just pretty, pretty uh, common for young conductors is to, you know, I do the same thing. Um, because if I haven't touched a piece of music before and I'm studying it, I want to make sure that I understand it just completely before that goes with my ideology behind, you know, the question of do you follow the score verbatim or do you, or do you try new things? And I think, you know, I think with the greatest rep in the world, Beethoven, uh, Mozart, Mendelssohn, um, Mahler, Debussy, any of these composers, you don't want to do that to their music. I mean, there's, you want to try to do it, you know. And some composers were much more detailed than others. I mean, if I play a Beethoven sonata, he has markings everywhere on every note. He even has he even has the pianist doing impossible things like crescendoing on one chord, which is impossible on the instrument. You know, he had such a sound concept of what he wanted it to sound like. Whereas if I play something like Bach, you could go through two or three pages with absolutely no markings of anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the other thing that I notice about how you're saying about staying true to the score I'm in a Baroque orchestra, so seeing this conductor, I have a really good conductor, Paul Lienhouts. Um, I notice one of the things he does is I I would compare it almost like to a, a coach. And this is what sometimes I say to people, what does a conductor do? I say it's a little bit like a coach of a team, um, like bringing out the most in the instrumentalists. Like we all see a crescendo. We all know what a crescendo is. You're supposed to get louder, but it's not all happening at the same time and it's just really wimpy, mm-hmm. you know? So bringing it all the way through the phrase, there's a tendency for people I notice to stop like they'll crescendo. If it's supposed to be over four bars, they'll crescendo over three bars and just kind of plateau. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting how a conductor can take kind of what people already know in their head, but make it a reality and really bring it like to its, to its maximum potential. Yeah. Do you ever think about it in those terms of like coaching or? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's tough when you talk about crescendi, one of the things that's difficult is getting them to do it all the way through. So sometimes what I'll say is the crescendo start, let's just say we have a four measure crescendo. Um, I don't have them really start crescendoing until um, maybe the second or third bar, because I know Mm -hmm. the tendency for an orchestra is to get fast or to get loud too fast. Mm -hmm. And then there's nowhere to go. So what you do is you have them start a little bit later. Um, Also like in Rossini overtures, they'll have these long, extremely long crescendos that happen over the overture um, that are multiple, multiple measures. And you go, how do you measure in a, a crescendo? How do you measure a 40 measure crescendo? It's difficult. It's, it's very difficult. But sometimes I think the best thing to do is to be patient and wait a little bit longer because most musicians don't know how to modify their sound like that efficiently for that long of a period of time. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's extremely hard. You need a lot of concentration to be able to gradually get louder, either on a sustained note or on a, like a motive or phrase. Um, and, and to think about that and, and be able to play effectively. It's, it's just hard. It's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I completely understand why they're having trouble. Mm. Another thing that I noticed, like with this, uh, conductor who, who was at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra is he would, um, they would reach a climax and then it would just die. Like the intensity would die right away on the first, on, on like a, a cadence or something when it should be held out, like mm-hmm. for several measures. I don't know. I think it's, it's knowing those tendencies, but that's, that's a tendency that people have. You know, I notice it in, in pianists too, when they play, they're a little reserved, you know, I don't know. So getting people to get to a hundred percent rather than play at 90%. So one of the things we haven't talked about is the beacon of light which is the conductor. I have gotten in front of groups that, I, that really, really respect me and they want to play for me. And so when I move, they move. And I have gotten in front of orchestras that are, they have on their mind, they've got two kids at home, one kid's in daycare, their husband's at work, and they're going through the motions because this is their paycheck. Mm. You don't know where orchestral musicians are when they come into the rehearsal and or the performance. But orchestras respond differently to every conductor. And if they really respect the conductor and like his views, like his personality, like, like him off the podium, being, what you do off the podium really enhances what you do on the podium. Like if you can develop mm-hmm. those relationships, if you can you know, work with your woodwinds, if they respect you, then when you get to that moment where you need that that gigantic feeling of intensity and ecstasy, they want to play that and they want to feel that with you. They want to dive into your soul and feel exactly what you're feeling. But if they are detached and they look at you like you're just some guy and you mean nothing, they're going to play the music that way. Right, right. I, and then I would say, you know, you know, the next thing is to go to an orchestra concert do not see a guest conductor, see the music director, the main music director, the one that's in charge of hiring and firing, and then see how the orchestra plays. And you will notice a huge difference yeah. in the way they respond 
not just because their job is on the line, but because it all goes back to why they started in the first place. People that wanted to be orchestral musicians fell in love with the rap. Like they fell in love with with you know uh, the English horn solo in in the New World Symphony in Dvorak Nine, or they fell in love with uh, the trumpet solo in Mahler Five. Like they fell in love with how they influenced music, and they want that's why they're doing it. They want to be a part of it. So there's that childlike. It's still there. It's very closed off. Like you have to take a saw and cut someone open, and really like someone that's in their forties and really dig in there and find that that's still there. So for some people, it's right on the surface of their skin. They are still animated. They've been doing it for twenty five years, but they love it. They can't get enough of it. But for many, you know, they've forgotten why they started in the first place. They now do it because it's how they make their income. And you know, we we all started music. You got into music, Josh, for your own reasons. I mean, there's something about piano performance that you fell in love with. And there was probably, if if I were to be specific, there was probably a moment where you fell in love with it, and then it, you 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 grasp onto that moment when things get rough. But you recognize that you love it, and when you play, you feel connected.、Um, I always like to say instrumentalists are different than vocalists because. When you're singing, you get to speak words, but、uh, a lot of instrumentalists, many of them, are introverted, and the way we communicate most effectively is through nonverbal communication, which is instrumental music,、mm. and we are able to speak on our instrument and say the things that we just can't say in our daily lives. We just can't say with our words. We have to do it this way, yeah, and, and that's how we feel connected. Yeah, that really. Hits home for me for sure. I want to talk a little bit about how you got into conducting.、Um, I、yeah. mean, how I got into piano. Yes, you're right. I definitely fell in love with some aspects of it. I, I heard these performances and saw the movie Shine and everything, and it's just like, oh, this is definitely what I want to do. It's kind of funny how thought of having you on this podcast because I remember working with you when you were doing violin at Cal State Long Beach, and.、Um, <laughs> Hope you don't take offense to this, but you were not the best violinist I worked with. <laughs>、uh, so I I remember you、uh, you were telling me, oh yeah, I'm gonna have an orchestra, I'm gonna be a conductor.、Um, to be honest, I thought no, because I remember you weren't you were like you just weren't that good at at violin. Although I really did enjoy working with you, I enjoyed like your charisma and everything, and how you were really dedicated to it. But then several years later, I was in New York and I heard this performance of you.、Uh, I don't know if it was on Facebook or something, but I clicked on it. I heard you conducting. I'm like, oh my gosh! Like it was really good. I could I could totally hear all your musical ideas and you know your body language. It was very easy to see what you wanted, and the orchestra was really responding. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's uh, so I I admire that about you actually.、Um, Well, thank you. So, how did you get into conducting from violin, and how did that all all happen? I went to a conducting workshop, and the way I got into going to this conducting workshop was, we got in the mail this handout from Cal State Long Beach that said, you know, go come come to this conducting workshop. You can learn about conducting. And at this time, my sister was at Stanford University, and so my parents. We're we're helping fund both of our educations, so it was 
a dramatic amount of money that they were spending. And so the minute I saw that, I went, you know, the school wants more money. They, you know, it's like a, <laughs> it's a money-making scheme. And uh, <laughs> my mother actually said, no, you should go to this. And I said, why? I mean, don't we already spend enough money on, on all this stuff? <laughs> and she says, no, you, know, you never, she said, you never know, you might actually enjoy it. And I was like, oh my God. All right, fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went and I went completely unprepared. I went without any music and I went with a baton that was purchased at a gift shop. So it wasn't, it wasn't even a real baton. It was like a, a fake baton. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was watching all these conductors conduct, and, and then I got up on the podium, and I uh, didn't know what I was doing at all. Like, I was completely lost. And the same guy, Neil Verone, was working there. Um, Neil Verone was pretty much the conductor that opened this, this door for me. And he said, I want you to watch something. And he got up. And when he got up, he started to work. Specifically, he started working with the cellos. And the, the cellos had this, this undulating rhythm that was going on over and over again. Underneath what was happening in the melodic content of the violins. And he started to focus on that and bringing that sound out. It was, it was almost like he was just pulling a little bit. And then when the brass came in, he started making eye contact with the horns. And he kind of like, it was so interesting. He made, the horns sounded very dry. But when he started to shape the horns, it started to sound almost like um, wet paint. It just started to flow. Mm. And then all of a sudden, he started to, he started to, I guess, make lemonade out of, things that I couldn't see. And all of a sudden, it is the most dramatic experience of my life. All of a sudden, everything went from black and white to color. Wow. And I started to hear things I'd never heard before. I was listening to the woodwinds, and I was listening, um, and the viola section had this uh, pizzicato thing going on. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that the, the violas were playing pizzicato there. And I'm also noticing that the pizzicato's not together. And I'm starting to notice all these things. And I went, whoa, this is so cool. <laughs> like, you know, this is really cool. And also one of the most interesting things about it was how the conductor was very important in, in making sure that it all stayed together. And I just remember like my, my jaw dropped and I got up and I, and I tried to follow him. And I remember him asking me, and I still have a video of this because it was a recorded masterclass. And he said, what are you doing? And I looked at him with a big smile and I said, I'm having fun. <laughs> and, and then after I got off the podium, I was just walking around with this very light, happy feeling. And it was, you know, one of those turning points in my life. And we started talking about music. We sat down and started talking about music. And it was in that moment that I, that I said to myself, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. However, I suck at it. <laughs> I'm not very good at it, but I want to get good at it. And man, I worked my tail off. When I, when I started my master's, I spent every day, I would practice conducting every day, four or five hours a day. I would do it in front of a mirror. I would do, 
change my ictus, change uh, the baton. I have about 200 batons now. Change my baton wow. grip. Change uh, my, my placement of my left hand, what my left hand's doing to match uh, maybe the articulation or what I was doing. And I would try all these things. In fact, my, uh, my original dissertation topic for my DMA was gestures. I was just going to talk about the numerous gestures that you can do. And I was going to catalog an encyclopedia of gestures because I was so excited about all the things, all the sounds you could get. Um, mm. And so I just geeked out and went into it head on. And then I just fell in love with it. And I still love it. I love it. You know, I, I practiced last night. I was practicing Chaik 4, the first movement last night. Um, and I love it. I, I, I can't get enough of it. I mean, there's so much you can learn through, through analysis, through, you know, with, with score study, through um, learning about your ensemble, what your ensemble needs. And it's just, it's just great. It's a great position to be in. I think conducting, being a conductor is very humbling because number one, you have the best seat in the house. So you get to witness this music, right? You're like swimming in the sound. You're right there. They're just like showering you with, with sound. And I think, you know, I, I left my home in California and came to Nebraska. And when I did, I was scared. I, I, you know, I was all by myself, but I realized it's, you know, when I'm conducting there's no better feeling in the world in watching a group of players play music together, collaborating with the same intent, creating art. I mean, we talk about art and what true art is. And, and you know, that's why you cry sometimes when you hear music is because music has this effect on you that's so powerful. And um, we just got to make sure that that the tradition of instrumental music and not in, in the tradition of orchestral music continues in high schools. Now uh, bands and choirs aren't having that much difficulty. You know, marching band has really tied itself with football. So bands, you know, I, when I was looking for jobs for, um, for university jobs as an orchestral conductor, I would say for every four band jobs, I found one orchestra job. So that's, that's how, lopsided it is mm -hmm. and so it's very noticeable there aren't nearly as many anymore and um, it's it's unfortunate or maybe it's not that there near, aren't nearly as many anymore it's there just there just literally aren't nearly as many mm -hmm. but that's you know back to your question that's how I went to Nebraska did my master's did my doctorate in orchestral conducting and went to Europe and the rest is history and for you as well you know you started on piano at you know, you started doing your undergrad at Cal State Long Beach, you fell in love, and boom, now you're doing your DMA at University of North Texas. I mean, yeah. When you fall when you fall in love with something, you just do it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you keep that uh, that integrity as to why you do what you do. It's very easy for people to forget that. I think I notice that a lot, especially in an academic setting, because you know everything is graded. There's deadlines. There's papers. There's all this extra extraneous stuff you have to do and and it's so easy to just get discouraged or just to go through the motions but when you just go through the motions the art dies and nobody wants to hear that i remember my my new york piano professor telling me in one of my first lessons she said the world does not need another mediocre musician <laughs> the world can have the world has plenty of space for mediocre bankers and 
people who work at the grocery store and in fast food and stuff, if you want to do an okay job, there's plenty of places for you, but nobody wants to listen to a mediocre performance. So yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta know the reason why. Um, And as a collaborative musician, I, I collaborate a lot, a lot of times, whether it's a trombone or a violin or a clarinet or a vocalist or something, I try to be tactful in the way I ask this question, but sometimes I'll be playing a passage and the person will slow down or speed up or, or something. And I'll say, um, I noticed you kind of took a little extra time. Were you meaning to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, usually, usually the answer is, oh, oh no, I didn't notice I did that. So yeah, Mm. it's, it's, uh, I'm glad that you think about all these things because when you do, yeah, it comes to life in a really almost magical way. You know, one one thing I wanted to add to what you're saying is is one thing I didn't talk about is how you speak to an orchestra. Mm. Um, is very it's very much what they call uh, just like in all of music they call it the uh, the politeness sandwich. You finish <laughs> and you go sandwich. Yeah, so you hear something you you don't like, for instance, and the first thing you do is you say something good they did. You go, wow, rehearsal two was fantastic. Woodwinds, I really like the way you shaped that phrase. However, oboes, I feel like you guys weren't quite together. Let's Mm -hmm. try it again. Um, Man, I remember when I was doing my student teaching and my, this was when I was doing undergrad and the teacher came up to me and he said, David, are you angry? And I said, yeah, how do you know? And he said, it's written all over your face. And I said, oh. And pretty much what he was saying was, everybody knows you're angry, which, mm. which you know, I'm a very authentic person, but you have to be able, when you get on the podium, you're like a mechanic. You, you're trying to fix this moving machine. And mm-hmm. you, you can't get angry every time you notice that there's something wrong with the machine. <laughs> or else, mm-hmm. first of all, you're your blood pressure is going to go through the roof and you're going to kill yourself. And also they're going to notice that you're upset all the time and and they're going to play submissively because they're afraid of getting you angry. A lot of the time, the reason, the main reason why orchestral music musicians hide behind other musicians is because they're so afraid because in their past they have either done something or witnessed something where an orchestral music or musician was pinpointed or just ridiculed and they don't want to be that person, so mm-hmm. they'll, they'll play very quietly to try to hide within the section. And what we want as orchestra conductors is we want them to all be leaders. We want them to all play out. And so when you're talking to the orchestra, it's so important that you're treating them with respect, number one. I mean, in the 30s and 40s, orchestra conductors were just the worst and the meanest people. They would scream and yell and cuss, and that has changed. Now you can't do that. First of all, you get fired if you if you do that now. But it used to be <laughs> but it used to be the way that that conductors ran rehearsals. They would just if it wasn't right, they would have gigantic tantrums on the podium and then they'd single you out, yell at you, um and that was and that was the way it worked. And you play you played out of fear. You played you played it right out of fear. And you know, and yeah. you probably know some of these teachers that um, that mm-hmm. will that will try to get you to play it right because um, they're going to scare you into doing it instead of 
you genuinely wanting to to do it the right way. And positive reinforcement is so much better than negative reinforcement, especially in an orchestral setting. I did notice, however, when I went to Europe that the way orchestral rehearsals were run are much stricter. Um, and, and the conductor, I, w- I, I would say, is a little bit more liberal in what he can or cannot say. Um, mm. Here, there is a lot more red tape, and I think that conductors have to watch what they say because, you know, a lot of orchestra musicians here won't tolerate that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, there is definitely a different cultural aspect in the way orchestra is handled in different continents. Right. But overall, when you were talking about that, that note, that this magical moment, whatever that is, it all, of course, what you do off the podium, how you treat them on the podium, and your relationships with them, it all matters. And, you know, I didn't realize that because at first I wanted to just go on the podium and conduct and then walk away, you know, and just be like, I'm going to show up, wave my arms around and then leave. But that's just not the way it is. You have to, you know, you have to deal with management if you're a conductor. Like right now I work with the Canesville Symphony and I work with the CEO of the nonprofit. Mm. I work with... um I work with the arranger. We have an arranger for our orchestra that arranges parts um, for, for specific instruments, if we want specific instruments. I work with other conductors. I work with, um, you know, and you, you have to, unfortunately, <laughs> if you're not good, if you're not a people person and you're not good at working with people, then it's definitely going to be a really rough go for you because that's a huge part of it. The, the, the real truth is, is I've seen videos of really, really bad conductors, like conductors that are waving their arms around and you just really have no idea what they're doing. But the orchestra musicians love them as people. And so they're willing mm-hmm. to they're willing to go to the ends of the earth for them. And so the question is, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the orchestra on board with you? Or would you rather have the technique, but the orchestra doesn't care about you? And you want both. But... Obviously, you want to learn the technique, but it's, it's, it's so important. And I think a lot of conductors miss that, how important those relationships are. Because, Josh, when you made that comment, you know, you're, you're, you know are, you, are you sure that, you know, are, were you trying to accelerando there? Is that what your intent was? You could have easily said, hey, stop rushing. You keep rushing at measure blah, blah, blah. And then what does that do to the relationship? He's not. He's gonna think that you don't like him or something, and then also right. it's gonna affect the way that you play. You collaborate together. So the way you speak to people, the way you treat people, is going to affect the music tremendously. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology in it. Understanding how people work with people. Yeah, and I'm sure. I'm sure deep down inside you want to go. Stop rushing. <laughs> Sometimes I do. <laughs> but yeah. like you said, you know, with the with it written on your face, people know that, and it. Even if you feel that portraying it will sometimes have the opposite result that you want. Yeah, I wanted to to ask about this conducting contest you did. It was in Budapest, right? Yeah. I really don't know how conducting contests work um, because you know it's it's one thing to have an instrumental contest, which I've talked to with uh, actually the last guest. He won a international bass competition, so we talked a lot about that. Fantastic. But um, how do they? How do they judge a conducting contest? Is it uh, like what's the structure behind it? Well, it's actually a little different 
because many conductors are much older, um, there's usually a buy-in. So you put money into a pot, um, and everyone puts the money into a pot, and then there are usually multiple rounds. The first round is usually done with two pianos. So you'll get up, and um, those pianos will usually be separated by instrumentation. So you'll have one piano playing the string part and one piano playing all the wind parts. Um, mm. And you'll have about 60, 70, 80 candidates that will go through a certain amount of music. Then the second day, we might do more of a chamber-like setting where you're going to do... When I say chamber, I mean orchestra music that does not require the mass amount of winds and brass and and, per, uh, and percussion. So you might do, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, you might do uh, something from an early Mozart symphony, Beethoven, um, so that they get a sense. Then you move on to the third round, and the third round sometimes is blind. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, these are the four pieces that you need to know, and we're going to like cold call blind one of these pieces, and you have to conduct it. So mm. now it's not it's not as obvious. And then as you progress through the conducting competition, the amount of time you're spending with the orchestra becomes more significant. So by the last round, you're spending maybe an hour rehearsing with them and an hour in performance with them. Um, in the first round, you're spending about 10 to 15 minutes with two pianos. So they're trying to weed out a lot of people early on so that they can get to the better candidates and see and see them more in depth and for longer periods of time. Um, conducting competitions will usually end with a couple of things. They'll end with, first of all, the competition winner. And the competition winner will win money. And then we'll also win guest conducting appearances at two, three, or four orchestras. So they, so that's part of the perk. You go, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put in money to this con- uh, conducting competition because if I win, I'll get to guest conduct here, here, and here. Then there's uh, what we call an audience prize winner because there's an audience usually um, in, at, at part of, usually the latter half of the competition. And the audience prize winner will be the one that the audience felt like they enjoyed the most. And then there's usually a first, second, and third prize. Many The reason why conducting competitions are so important, many conductors get their start by winning competitions. They will win, and then they'll, uh, they'll guest conduct an orchestra, and then once they guest conduct that orchestra, if that orchestra really likes them, and then they lose their music director, that's how they get their, their foothold into becoming the music director of another orchestra. Mm. So it's a really great way of taste testing an, uh, a conductor for major orchestras is they'll bring in a conductor just for one concert. And, you know, they're, they're constantly thinking, if we need a new music director, who are we, who are we interested in? Um, and they do the same thing when they're even, even outside of competition when they're looking for a new music director. They'll bring in five or like they'll have a whole season where they'll bring in all guest conductors just so that they can try out different, um, different people. So are they judging more the final product or are they judging more the way that you work with the musicians? It's, it's both. It's, it's really both. Um, they're judging pretty much how you rehearse. So the, the, uh, during the competition, they'll put a microphone on your lips so that they can hear you speaking. An audience will be able to okay. hear you speaking too because the audience oh. wants to hear you rehearse. It's actually it's very fascinating. Um, and then there's also a timer. So they'll say, okay, you have this amount 
this much amount of time to work on this piece and then this amount of time to work on this piece. And they'll cut you off <coughs> in the middle of rehearsal and then you'll have to switch on to the next piece. So it's, it's one of those things where um, you have to be very conscious of your time management. The uh, experience that I had was more of if you conduct well and the person that's running the uh, festival likes you, you get to conduct the orchestra. So that uh, I'm actually doing, uh, in January, I'm doing the International Conducting Workshop and, con and Competition in, oh. um, in Georgia. And that is a very similar experience where if I were to win the competition, I'm, I get to come back and conduct the orchestra in the following season. So cool. I think, look, just like in your field, in piano performance and in conducting, there are a lot of people competing to to perform at the highest and, and, and at the highest level. And so you're constantly competing. As a conductor, at some point, you have to be okay and, and content with where you are and what you're doing. I think everybody at some point as a conductor wants to be the music director of the LA Phil, wants to be the music music director of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, you know, they, they want, they have the highest aspirations, but then at some point they realize, okay, <laughs> I need to set a realistic expectation on what I can and cannot do. Um, mm -hmm. Which is not to say that I can't be the conductor of the LA Phil. It's more so for my own psychological well-being. I don't want to feel like I'm hindering my own projection in life. And so the real thing when it comes to conductors is finding the right home for you, finding the right orchestra, whether it's a high school orchestra, whether it's a youth orchestra, whether it's a community orchestra. I work with a community orchestra now and I, I love it. I really love working with community orchestras because they're volunteering their time to be there and they want to be there. Yeah, that's huge. And with student orchestras at universities, many, many times you're working with students that are thinking about the papers they're writing or where they're going to go during winter break. And they're just there and they're not, they don't really care. And sometimes, right. sometimes you want the attitude more than you want the musicianship. And then sometimes you want the musicianship more. It, it, it depends. But, you know, that attitude of, God, I care about the music. I'm trying hard. I really want to be here. It goes a long way with a conductor. Yeah, that's great, man. Well, thanks so much for the insight. I really learned a lot. Um, you know, we, we still have topics we didn't get to, but if you ever want to do a follow-up episode, maybe like after you do the conducting workshop or something. Yeah, let's do it. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, like we talk about education, the whole linked learning, university system, musical theater, your metal core band story. Like there's a lot more. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I would love to do more of these with you. I, I find it, first of all, it's great to talk to you about this. And second of all, I hope that you know, whoever is listening to this or whoever finds this podcast will either codify the way they feel about orchestra music or they might learn something different and, you know, might get a new perspective on the role of the conductor. So I think it's, you know, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Well, I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'll go ahead and leave you guys with the rest of that movement. Uh, Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, the First Movement, played by the Hungarian Dahnani Orchestra Budafok, and the conductor is Dr. David Galant.